0: Well, good morning, and uh, again, welcome to Leewood Campus on this uh, beautiful day. My name is Tom Nelson, and uh, so glad that you are here. Um, Also, it's a delight to be a part of our pastoral staff, and uh, we may have one month, you know, where it's clergy appreciation time, but we want you to know that every month we appreciate you, and on behalf of our great team, we love you, and uh, we love serving you uh, across our campuses, and uh, it's just a great joy of our lives to serve such a wonderful congregation. If you're visiting this morning, I hope you feel at home and welcome. Uh, We are so glad you are here. Have you noticed that uh, the day in which we live is a day where there's just lots of fear hanging around? Um, When we look at the uh, headlines and we hear of the looming fiscal cliff, uh, we hear of a possibility of a nuclear-armed Iran, we hear of the possibility of a terrorist attack or one that has just been thwarted. Fear is epidemic in our day. Sometimes fear impacts us more close to our own particular daily lives. Uh, Sometimes fear reaches out at us at the most unexpected moment and scares us to death. Sometimes it's uh, on our way to work or school and we're driving our car and all of a sudden things change in front of us and we go, whew. I remember when I was with a friend of mine, uh, he was actually driving his 911 Porsche, if you're into those kind of things. But it was on a Minneapolis freeway, and it was a rainy day, and I remember him coming like it was yesterday, coming onto the on-ramp on this busy freeway, and all of a sudden, he started doing 360s, three of them that I remember. It was just like my life flashed in front of me. Maybe you've had that. And we never touched a car. We ended up on the backside of a guardrail, unhurt. And uh, you know those white-knuckle moments? We all have those. Sometimes it's we're walking in a park or someplace by ourselves, and we have this sort of creepy stranger that seems to be following us, and you know what it's like to have your heart just pounding your chest. Fear is amazing, and fear can scare us to death. I guess that's why I was sort of interested in the latest uh, Wall Street Journal. It was this week, an article that captured my attention. Maybe you saw it. Uh, It says, Science shows even the fit can be scared to death. And uh, Melinda Black, the reporter, captures the latest research about the sense of what we feel and how we feel, the sense of what we think and how we react physiologically. And uh, she writes these words. She says, Doctors around the world are increasingly identifying an unusual heart problem, even in otherwise healthy people who have suffered a severe fright, or a traumatic experience, or, notice, a loss of a loved one. Physicians, uh, she goes on to say, describe this condition, and it's a big word, it's stress cardiomyopathy. Did I do that right the a physician or something like that? It's scary just to say it. But I like their nickname. The nickname is called Broken Heart Syndrome. And it is a really a true reality that we can be so scared... Embrace such fear and grief that our hearts react in a negative way. And Jesus, of course, understood this. He is the great physician. He created us. Uh, We are made in his image. And he, in his incarnational glory, walked this planet in all that mystery of humanity and deity without sin. So as we enter into the story that we are going to look at this morning we understand that Jesus lived with his disciples. He spent day and night with them, every waking hour with them for three years. Jesus understood their life and their realities. He had shared all the highs you can imagine, all the lows you can imagine of close friends living life together. None of them were prepared for what Jesus would do the night before he was to be crucified. In an upper room on that Passover night, that meal that he brings together in this beautiful setting of intimacy, Jesus drops amazing bombshells on his disciples. But none of them more amazing and compelling and that scared the disciples spitless than when he said to them and as he looked them in the eye and said, I'm leaving you. Now let's remember that the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus, right? Now he's telling them that he's going to leave them. What's the deal of that? So what we enter into is really the perfect storm of fear. Along with that, when we understand the text we're going to look at in the context, is that Jesus has not only done that, that he said, I'm leaving, but he has also sort of outed Judas Judas is going to betray him, unthinkable treachery. Now, that makes for a good meal, doesn't it? But not only that, he looks Peter in the eyes and says, you're going to deny me? So you have a betrayer, a denier, and Jesus says, I'm out of here. Now, that doesn't make for a good dinner conversation. So we have to understand the text we're looking at this morning is centered in a moment of intimate conversation, an intimate place where Jesus' disciples are scared spitless Yet, how does Jesus respond to this? Jesus will say some important words. And they are words that in our fall series, we are looking at several startling words that Jesus gives us. And if this is not the one of the most startling, I don't know what it is. In this context, when they are scared spitless, Jesus looks them in the eye and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Wow. When we hear these words, we might not feel very comfortable. Words that Jesus designed His disciples to hear as a comforting reality. For many of us, it's religious exclusivity, and what we attach to it in our minds as religious intolerance makes us anything but comfortable. So the text we're going to look at this morning is a challenging one. We must understand its context. And most of us who are here and whatever our spiritual journey is, we like Jesus. Jesus is a likable guy, what we know of him, but we don't always like his ideas. And if there's one idea that we push back on in our cultural location and context, it is this one. Perhaps that's why uh, I get to do this message. (laughs) But it is an important message, so I'd love for you to open up your minds and have a teachable heart, and let's look at what Jesus said. Let me say right up front, I am going to be unvarnished in terms of what Jesus says. Jesus declares unequivocally, unequivocally I can't even say it, without ambiguity. <laughs> I've done too much talking this week, so give me grace. Uh, <clears throat> but Jesus declares very clearly a truth claim of exclusivity, philosophical and religious exclusivity. And we wrestle with that, don't we? But Jesus is right up front in our cultural context where we think there are many paths to God, that Jesus says very clearly, there is one path, and that's me. There's no wiggle room. It is the narrow gate, and I'm it. And these are Jesus' words. So you ready to dive in? You with me? John chapter 14. If you have your Bible, turn there to this extraordinary text. Now, if there were ever two unwelcome guests of the human heart, don't you think it is paralyzing doubt and paralyzing fear? I mean, doubt and fear are brutal. But this is what Jesus addresses, because he looks his disciples in the eyes, and that's where they are. So this text flows around addressing those two realities. Verses 1 through 3, Jesus addresses this intense fear, and he says, we are to replace our fear with hopeful faith. That's what he says first. Then Jesus transitions in verses 4 through 7, and he highlights our debilitating doubt. And he says, we replace doubt with a proper confidence. So this text addresses fear and doubt and calls each of us to a hopeful faith, got that, and proper confidence. So let's dive in. Let me read verses 1 through 3 again, because they set the tone. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, some of us might be thinking, in my father's house will we play football and so forth, sorry, I'm going to kind of get in there. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let's set ourselves into the story. Jesus' disciples are freaking out. Their fear and grief, it is a perfect storm in their heart. The word Jesus uses in the original language suggests that Jesus sees their physiological evidence of their paralyzing fear. English word is troubled, and that has a sense that there is something shaking, and that's the idea behind this text, that they are shaking in their boots. If I were to translate this in our common vernacular, I'd say they are shaking in their boots. There's a physiological evidence of their paralyzing fear. This is what this word trouble means. This is serious trouble. This is physiological evidence. They cannot hide. So Jesus looks at them shaking in their boots with fear and grief and provides them an immediate antidote, the antidote to this kind of fear. He says in verse 1, and verse 1 is foundational to the whole text, y'all, and to understand what Jesus says, we've got to grasp verse 1, because all the logic and development of the narrative flows from verse 1. Jesus says the antidote to fear is faith. Twice, he gives us an imperative to trust But notice, it is not just a feel-good faith. It is faith focused on a particular object. You will notice in the text, it says, believe God and believe me, or some texts have also. But the text is a statement of deity. Jesus is looking his disciples in the eye who are scared spitless, and he is saying, I am God incarnate. You trust God, you trust me. It's the same thing. And later on in this chapter, he will say, the Father and I are one. So he wants us to understand, and his disciples to understand right away, who he is. The bedrock of this text is verse 1, and that is a statement of who Jesus is. He is God incarnate. He is deity. We can trust him as we would trust the Father, because they are one. Now notice, not only does he anchor us in this truth claim, the foundational truth claim, that is a who question he now goes to where, or the future, to when? And he paints their current circumstance, as, they're, as scared as they are, and he paints them to the future. He points them to the future. He paints this beautiful picture of his father's house. A, glory, a glorious future awaits, verses 2 and 3. And Jesus the carpenter, who made all the world who created the world, who invaded the world with his incarnate presence on the rescue mission of the world, now has still more work to do. The carpenter is not done in building projects. That's the idea. So Jesus looks to the future and says, I have work to do, guys. I have a great work project with my Father in the new heavens and new earth. Now, they didn't understand all that, and we have a better perspective. Believe that or not, we have Revelation 21. The scriptures that tell us inspired inspired scriptures that God will prepare for his followers, his apprentices, this new heavens and new earth. And Jesus paints the picture of rooms and preparing for this beautiful reality of coming home to the Father's house. Notice twice in the text the emphasis on place. It is very important to Jesus. Not only a future, but a place of home and joy. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is getting their eyes off their present circumstances and on him and on a glorious future that waits because of him. Every time I read this text, I think of the great movie about C.S. Lewis's life called Shadowlands. If you've not seen it, it is outstanding. And there's one scene in there that I love most. C.S. Lewis loses his wife. The love of his life he waited so long for Helen... To cancer. It's just a brutal experience in his life. And his son, Helen's son, there's a scene with C.S. Lewis sitting in front of the wardrobe, the wardrobe in his attic that gave this great inspiration of the Chronicles of Narnia, the great hopeful writings. He and his son are sitting right in the attic after her funeral. And as they sit there, this wave of intense fear and grief hit them like a tsunami wave, and they just cry their eyes out. They shake with fear and grief. End of the movie, there is a hopeful refrain from Lewis's own writing, and the movie ends with these words, the pain now is part of the happiness then. That's the deal. This is what Jesus is saying. Painful days are ahead. Yes, I'm leaving But there is a great happiness coming, and that's the deal. That's life you need to live with now. I am with you. Here in the shadow lands of overwhelming fear and grief, that's what has to be, the disciples hear Jesus telling them a glorious future awaits. He will tell them later that the Holy Spirit is coming and that they are not alone. But his focus right here is to look forward to what is coming. Now you can almost imagine if you put yourself around these pillows, around this meal in the upper room, the disciples hearing this intense, these bombshells and the fear of their heart is overwhelming them. You can almost hear them thinking out loud, where on earth are you going? But this is not the first time in the narrative. If you look back in chapter 13, you'll notice that Peter raised this question as well. Good old Peter, he's the smartest kid in the class. Peter says, Jesus, where are you going? And Peter is brushed back on his heels. So there's no way Peter is going to respond. I mean, Peter is shut up. So there's text gives us this picture, like Jesus says, and the grammar is like this. He says, guys, you know the way I'm going, right? Now, if you were there, imagine in the first century, it gets really quiet. I mean, it is so quiet, it's pin-drop quiet. There's nothing going on. The disciples freeze. And I have a sense that it was quiet for quite some time. (laughs) No one is going to dare respond to Jesus after Peter being brushed back, the smartest kid in the class. The smartest kid in the class, got it, goodness. So there's this long, awkward silence in the upper room. It's a long silence a long silence, And you can almost hear the sighs of relief of the disciples when Thomas, probably two or three pillows down, (laughs) finally breaks the silence. They're sitting around. The meal's in front. Their pillows are leaning against each other. That's the picture. And Thomas, (laughs) doubting Thomas, who I'm named after, said to him, notice verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Don't you love Thomas? I mean, it's unvarnished. I mean, he's not trying to fake it in front of Jesus. He knows that doesn't work. We should learn that lesson as well. It doesn't pay to fake it in front of Jesus. He sees through fakery. So Thomas is so refreshingly refreshingly transparent, isn't he? He says, we have no clue. What are you saying? Now, when we read verse 6, we sort of do it in a distance. But think of the context. Jesus, in my mind, stops right there, moves closer to Thomas, puts his arm around him, looks him in the eye, and says these words. Thomas, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And notice he doesn't just stop there. He says... If you know me or had known me, there's some debate in terms of exactly that tense there in the text. Either one work. You would have known my father also. Now notice these three words because we often jump over this. Jesus, imagine, is looking Thomas right in the eye. The one who loves him more than anyone in the universe. And says, Thomas, from now From now on. From now on what? You do know him. And you have seen him. I'm him. That's the idea. This is a watershed moment for Thomas. And Jesus is saying, things must be different from now. Why? Because what he is saying to Thomas and what he is saying to each of us, the greatest questions of life are first the question of who. He says, if you get the who right... The where will come. Jesus reframes the question. He doesn't answer the where. Do you see that? Rather, he says, Thomas, you have to get the who right. And if you get the who right, the rest falls in line. You need to trust me because I will take you where you need to go if you trust me. This past week, I experienced this on a little lesser level. I was in Pittsburgh. Uh, Never been to Pittsburgh before. It's a fine city, you know, three rivers and all that. Maybe you've been there, but I had no idea. I mean, I've never been there. You've been to a so city, you have no idea. And I had several meetings and speaking engagements that had been set up for me. And uh, I was so grateful because a friend of mine, Steve, picked me up at the airport. He knows everything about Pittsburgh. So not once in two days did I ever worry where I was going in my schedule, and it was full. Why? I didn't need to know the where when I knew the who, and I trusted the who. He knew everything, and I trusted him. I never worried. I had no fear, no doubt. I was totally locked in on those two days because of Steve. Jesus is saying, yeah, it's not just finding your way around the city. It's life. It's what guides you in life. It's about your life. It's not just the where and the what. Those are important, but it's the who. Center on the who. If you get the who right, the rest follows. First who? Then where, Thomas? As a young boy, I remember wrestling deeply with what my life was supposed to be, and maybe I still am in some ways. But when I was younger particularly, I wrestled with the question of what my life was to be. And as an early uh, child, about six years old, I remember memorizing a verse that if you're younger today or maybe younger of heart, I want to encourage you to memorize if you haven't already. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I remember grabbing onto this text, and I'm so grateful I am because Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, says we live our life forward, we understand them backward. I've had a little bit of time since then to see how true that is. So take my word. It's a compass setting for your life, the wise life. Trust in the Lord. With all your heart, lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Jesus is saying in a midrash of a rabbi, I am it, I am this wisdom, I am your way. Trust me, I will guide you. Trust me for everything, that's what he says. In the midst of their intense fear, place your faith in me. But notice he also addresses Thomas' doubts in his logical portrayal of what he says. He says, He says, remove your doubt and instead replace proper confidence. Now, when Jesus says these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, as I have said, it makes many of us uncomfortable. So let me take a few moments, if you'll indulge me, and address why religious exclusivity makes us uncomfortable, why it's so important. We need to understand that Jesus clearly says he is the way. He is making an exclusive religious claim of truth. And we have to respond to that. We can't change it. We can't distort it. This is what Jesus says. He's very clear. So how do we respond to it? C.S. Lewis, who was a convert from atheism to Christianity, said brilliantly, there are three logical choices and only these three. Jesus either is a Pathological liar, but again, nothing ever in life points to that at all. Quite the contrary. He's either that or he's a lunatic on the level, as Lewis said, of a poached egg. But nothing reflects that about Jesus, or he's Lord God Himself. We can't dismiss him as some good teacher only. Jesus' words are compelling. But in our culture, in our cultural context, we have some pushbacks, don't we? I mean, let's be transparent. One of the finest thinkers in our day, in this area of our culture, he was trained by Peter Berger, the finest sociologist in the world, Dr. James Hunter at the University of Virginia, has thought a great deal about our cultural context in our times and why religious exclusivity has a hard sell. Can I use that language? It's hard to stick. He calls it plausibility. And James Hunter looks at our cultural context with brilliance as a sociologist and says, the time we live in, the cultural moment we live in is unique in human history. There are two massive forces that cause us to push back against, quote, exclusive truth claims. He uses two words. Let me share them with you, and I'll unpack them briefly. The two forces that humans have never experienced in this kind of perfect storm of disbelief are dissolution and difference. Dissolution is a big word. What it means is a radical skepticism that we cannot know anything That the only thing we can know is our personal feelings, that there's everything about knowledge is so corrupted in history, and our cultural location, and how we see it, that we can't know anything truly. All we can know is to look at our belly button, look inside, and what we feel. That's called the solution. And it leads to radical skepticism that truth exists, or we can know it, that there's any objectivity of life. The second one is on the heels of that, and that's difference. We often use the language of pluralism. It simply means that the world we live in, unlike any time before in human history, confronts us every day with extraordinary diversity of God's world. Uh, Technology brings us to a flattened earth, right? We think of a flattened globe. I mean, we encounter in nanosecond time the whole world with all its philosophical viewpoints, all its religions, all its languages, all its cultures, and all these truth claims all at once. Just like that at our computer. Not only that, is it the people we encounter every day? And there's some wonderful beauty in this, right? Our neighbors, our co-laborers, our classmates at school, our fellow teachers, or our, our maybe our, our son-in-law our daughter-in-law are from a, maybe a different religion or a different ethnicity or a different cultural background. And so every day we're having conversations with people that see the world vastly different than we do. And so what that does, to whatever viewpoint we have, it makes us very shaky. Like, how can I know? I mean, other people see this, and they're good people. They're smart. I love them. They're wonderful people I work with. And it shakes the very foundation that truth can be known. And it puts us often in a downward spiral of subjectivism. The idea that all we can really know is what we feel inside. That's the default factor of what we know today. Because of these two primary forces that are shaping and reshaping how we see the world and experience it. And again, there are many good things with this. I'm not saying all bad. But it is a challenge to faith. Faith that is anchored in objective historical truth. So our neighbor or our classmate or our colleague at work is our friend, and rightly so. And we interact with them, and they see the world vastly different than us. So how do we process this? How do we navigate our times when we hear Jesus' words of religious exclusivity? What I want to suggest to you, the default factor for many, is to turn within to a subjective thing. I, One of the guys that uh, reads the Kansas City Star faith section, and you read that on Saturday, it's kind of, I'm the faith nerd, right, the religion nerd. Maybe you read the sports section and everything else more, but there's a faith section on the Saturday paper that I often read, because I'd love to get a picture of how people are thinking about religion and faith, and it's a good picture, picture of our diversity in our culture, A week ago, uh, Reverend Tufty, I don't know him, I'm sure he's a fine guy, his name is Duke Tufty, wrote in, and the title of the article piqued my interest because it so much captures the, the, the cultural context, the mood of our day, and it's entitled, Choose Your Path, Your Own Path, quote. And this is what he writes, let me just kind of give you a flavor, because I think it gives a picture of why faith, the Christian faith, often has a hard time connecting. He says, Many religions are filled to the brim with do's and don'ts that usurp a person's right to choose what is best for them. No matter what robes and stoles one might wear, what golden staff one might carry or lofty perch one might preach from, that person is no closer to God than you and knows less how you should live your individual life than you do. And then he goes on to describe again his understanding of the world. God is spirit. The very essence of your spirit is life force, being, consciousness, love, and wisdom, all of which are present in you as in anyone else. So turn within for the personal direction you seek, and you will find it. So as thoughtful listeners and thoughtful people, we begin to hear Reverend Tufty's words and Jesus' words, and there's a chalkboard moment. Those two go against each other, right? He says, choose your way. Tufti says, your path. You are the path. You are the way. You are the enlightened one. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the path. I am the truth. So how do we deal with this? Well, what we need to say, first of all, we could spend a lot of time here, and we just don't have time, and I'd love to talk with you more about this because it's a very important question for a thoughtful person of faith. We must understand that how inclusive and nice Reverend Tufte's words sound, they are not inclusive at all. They are exclusive just like any other claim. Truth claims that reject any religion that claims to be the only way to God is also an exclusive truth claim. Truth claims, by their nature, have exclusivity to them, they are unavoidable. Tim Keller, who's the pastor of Redeemer Church in um, New York City, has thought deeply about this, and I commend to you his book the reason for God, if you're wrestling with this idea of exclusivity, which is a good thing to wrestle with, by the way, uh, his chapter one is excellent. And C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, is also excellent. But Tim Keller attaches his thoughts and logic right away to this assertion that's so common today, and that is that there can't just be one true religion, only one way to God. There can't be, and they're dismissed. And Tim Keller very lovingly and gently completely eviscerates that foundational argument. And he, let me give you an, app, an appetizer, okay? I'm going give you a Tim Keller appetizer this morning. to encourage you to read him. He says, It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all is equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. This is important for us to grasp when we hear Jesus' words. The question is not whether truth claims of religion are exclusive. The question is, what exclusivity is most compelling? That's the question. And this is where I believe that Jesus is in a league by himself. Jesus' extraordinary life, his atoning death on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead, all point to one conclusion for the thoughtful person who is willing to deal with the evidence and logic that Jesus is the one who he claimed to be, that he is God in the flesh. This is what he says to Thomas and his disciples. Because if we get the who right, the rest follows. Now, that is not to say we have perfect knowledge. All of us in our finitude and our limitations and our sin look through a mirror dimly. Rabbi Paul said that. That our ability to grasp the world is limited by our cultural location and our sin. Yes, yes. But the difference is that we know the one who knows. That Jesus is the knowledgeable one and we can know him truly. And knowing him truly, we can know the world really and profoundly. The idea that we cannot know anything truly is a false foundation. Notice what Jesus says. I think the most brilliant being who ever walked on the planet of earth. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, If you abide in me, that's a relational abiding, and my words abide in you, You will know, and notice what Jesus says. It is a definite article, not indefinite. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus says there is truth. First, truth is a person, it's me. And this truth will set you free, free from the holy righteous wrath of God, free from enslavement to sin, and free to live the life you and I so deeply long to live in the depths of our being. So often, y'all, we hear Jesus' words as this battering ram of religious intolerance, but the context of his words are a comforting invitation to the one who can give us life that we long for. He is the door to the narrow gate and the hard way, the life you long to live, the life Jesus wants you to live, the life he died for you to live. This is so important in grasp with the context of his words. They were designed to give comfort, not a battering ram, as they're often pulled out of context. They're an invitation because of who he is that we can find life in him. If we get the who right, the what of our life and the where and the how flow. So Jesus centers his disciples on the who from verse 1 to verse 7. Jesus says, I am the way. What he means there is follow me. I am the way, follow me. Jesus says, I am the truth. Know me. You can know me. I am the life, you can experience me and the life you were designed to live. So, dear friends, Jesus' words are startling to, the, to us, aren't they? I'm sure they were startling in the first century. The first century had its own dissolution and difference. But scholars tell us, not at the level of application today. So we struggle with the plausibility of Jesus' words. It's hard to get our minds around it. But Jesus addresses us clearly. Are your hearts filled with fear this morning? It's a scary world, isn't it? There's one theme I experience in my own life and I have conversations with you that I care so deeply about. It's the deep fear that is paralyzing your life about the world, about politics, about economics, about your health, about losing your love, about your children, your grandchildren. Fear stalks our heart. Fear about our jobs And Jesus looks into our eyes and he says, if you get the who right, you don't need to fear. If you believe in me, if you trust in me, if you place your whole trust in me, you do not have to live a life of paralyzing fear. You can live a life of hopeful faith. What encouragement that is to us. Is your heart filled with doubt? Doubt is not antithetical to true faith. Honest doubt is good. But doubt should lead us to the one gives us confidence that he is the way the truth and the life maybe you're struggling with intellectual doubt maybe you're struggling with emotional doubt you're cynical you're wrestling with Jesus' words and I encourage you to wrestle with them and talk with some of us about that as well it's a good thing to be wrestling with and Jesus looks you in the eye and says let not your heart be troubled believe in me believe in God I'm God believe in me Put your trust there. Anchor your life in me. And you will live a life, and experience, a life that you never imagined you could experience and you will know a future as glorious as you can ever imagine. This is not all of it. There's much more to come. And Jesus wants us to say to ourselves, the pain now, it's a very messy world. The pain now is a part of the happiness then. That's the deal. So how do we respond? Jesus says, trust me trust me with everything the sin you struggle with the doubts you work with i am the way i am the truth i'm the life trust me with your future trust me with your finances trust me with your family trust me and jesus calls us not to some smug arrogance to beat people over the head or to win an argument he calls us to a joyful humility And in his providence, he would invite us into this life that we were designed to live through him. If Jesus, if there was another way, Jesus' death on the cross was needless. But Jesus knew there was only one way, and he was in. And he died for you. And he rose from the dead, he signed the way. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Know the who. I'll take care of the what and the where. So walk with joyful humility if you know him this morning. If you don't know him, embrace him by faith and repentance. And love others unconditionally around you. The gospel calls us to love those who have different political affiliations, different views of the world, different religions, different faiths, your friends, your neighbors. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to love those who even hate us because of Jesus. Because they are so valuable in God's eyes, Christ died for them. Love others unconditionally. And then tell others about Jesus. Jesus' words of invitation are compelling for a lost world. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Christ's eternity awaits those who don't know Christ. And we have the greatest joy of living the gospel and communicating the gospel to those wonderful, precious people around us. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. Let's pray. as you're bowing your head and asking God to speak to you, may this be a watershed moment where Jesus looks into your life and says, from now on, trust me. Will you trust him as Lord and Savior? Will you trust him with the fears that you're facing and the doubts you are facing? Will you experience the joy of what it means to follow Christ in the already not yet Pay now as part of the happiness then that 's the deal let 's trust Jesus in christ alone we live.